Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 60 now on our website. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, Brooke Jarvis, David Gran, Tom Juneau, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. So, you're probably wondering why episodes 2 and 3 are just now showing up in your RSS feed. Well, more than two years ago, I moved all of the episodes to SoundCloud. In the process, two of the files were corrupted. Those files contained these two episodes. Episode 2 featured Michael Mooney. We talked about his story, The Most Amazing Bowling Story Ever, which ran in D Magazine, and was ultimately anthologized in Best American Sports Writing. Episode 3 featured Pamela Koloff, and we talked about her Innocent Man two-part series, which ran in Texas Monthly. She ultimately won a National Magazine Award for this story. Both of these episodes were recorded in January of 2013. For so long, I've been bothered by the fact that we were missing these two episodes. Mooney and Koloff offer so many insights into reporting and writing narrative journalism, insights that I thought had been lost forever. Just recently, though, I was looking through an old binder from my days at Ashland University and came across a CD labeled Gangry the Podcast. That CD ultimately had the first seven episodes of the show burned on it, starting with our first, featuring Justin Heckert, through number seven, which was Brian Mockenhop. Well, now these episodes are back. I apologize for the sound quality on these early Gangry recordings. I was still trying to figure out what it meant to be a podcaster, and I really had no clue how to record and edit audio. But Mooney and Koloff have some amazing things to say on the craft that went into their remarkable stories. This also means now that every episode of Gangry the Podcast is available for free on our website, Go to www.gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to anyone from Janet Reitman to Ben Montgomery, from Tom Juneau to Eva Holland. You will learn so, so much. I'm Matt Tullis. Today on Gangry the Podcast, we visit with Pamela Koloff of Texas Monthly Magazine. Pamela wrote the story, The Innocent Man. It ran in two parts late last year and told the story of Michael Morton. Morton was wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife in 1987 and spent 24 years behind bars. But first, I wanted to take the time to let you know that this is our third podcast. We've also talked with Justin Heckert about his New York Times Magazine story, The Hazards of Growing Up Painlessly. And we talked with Michael Mooney about his story, The Most Amazing Bowling Story Ever. You can find links to both of those podcasts at gangrythepodcast.com. You can also download them on iTunes. Now, back to The Innocent Man. Pamela Koloff worked on the story for nine months before it ran in November and December of 2012. We've linked to the stories on our website, gangrythepodcast.com. They are definitely worth the time to read. Pamela, thanks for joining us. Can we start things off by having you read the second paragraph of your story? Yes, absolutely. This is about Michael Morton, who's the subject of my story. 
His windowless concrete cell, which he shared with another inmate, measured five by nine feet. If he extended his arms, he could touch the walls on either side of him. A small metal locker that was bolted to the wall contained one of the few remnants he still possessed from his previous life, a photograph of Eric, his son, when he was three years old, taken shortly before the murder. The boy was standing in the backyard of their house in Austin, playing with the windsock, grabbing the streamers that fluttered behind it in the breeze. There was a picture, too, of his late wife, Christine, a candid shot Michael had taken of her years earlier with her hair pinned up, still wet from a bath. She was looking away from the camera, but she was smiling slightly, her fingers pressed against her mouth. The crime scene photos were still fresh in Michael's mind, but if he focused on the snapshot, the horror of those images abated. Christine with damp hair smiling. This was how he wanted to remember her. I just love that paragraph. I love the whole story. It's a really long story. Could you give us a brief synopsis of The Innocent Man? Yes, uh, it is a very long story. It's, uh, I think, almost 29,000 words. Uh, This is the story of a man named Michael Morton, who is an ordinary guy, middle-class guy, uh, living in North Austin in the mid-80s with his wife and young son. He was a grocery store manager. And... uh, his wife was murdered one morning when Michael was not home. He was at work or on his way into work. Um, and uh, she was murdered in their bed. And law enforcement quickly narrowed in on him and assumed that it was him and sort of never looked back. And he spent 25 years in prison having not committed this crime, being separated from his son, who was uh, three at the time that the crime was committed for when he went to prison and uh, was later, much later, uh, exonerated when DNA evidence was finally tested over the vociferous objections of the Williamson County District Attorney's Office. And those DNA results not only revealed that Michael was not the killer, but there was um, DNA evidence in there that pointed to the identity of another man who is now standing trial this spring for the murder of Christine Morton. How did you find out about the story, and how did you decide you wanted to write about it? I I live in Austin, and this was a huge, huge story uh, when these DNA results broke. Um, And I just immediately, I've been writing about wrongful convictions now for a while here. Unfortunately, we have a lot to write about here in Texas. And this case to me was just, even though it it was garnering a lot of media attention, Um, to me there was so much more narratively that needed to be told and um, so I I hope what it does and I I think from the reader response that we've gotten I I think it does is that it personalized uh, the issue of wrongful convictions I mean I think anybody can relate to you're just an ordinary person you're married you're doing your job and then you know all of a sudden everyone I mean it by the time Michael went to jail, even his friends were convinced that he had done this. So hopefully that sort of reaches a broader audience than some of these cases usually do. What has the reader response been? It's been, it's been pretty tremendous. It's been wonderful. You know, we were sending this story out into the world that is obscenely long. And I think we were worried um, that people weren't going to take the time to read it. And that's actually part of why we split it up into two pieces. It was in the November and December issue of Texas Monthly. Um, But we actually, it was funny, we actually got a lot of angry readers who were mad they had to wait a month 
to get the second half of it. So that was really encouraging to me that there is that kind of appetite for long, long form magazine narrative journalism. Um, but we've gotten a lot of response, uh, especially on Twitter, uh, really from around the world. Uh, and that's been hugely gratifying. When you decided that you wanted to write about this story, how did you start your writing and reporting process? That is a great question. Uh, what's, what was strange about this story is the people who usually would be eager to talk to me, that, that being the defendant's lawyers and, and hopefully the defendant himself, um, I didn't have access to for quite a while. He, Michael had agreed from, it was like the moment he walked out of prison, he agreed to an exclusive with 60 Minutes. And he couldn't talk to media until the 60 Minutes piece aired. Well, it took six months from when he got out of prison to when the 60 Minutes piece aired. And, and his attorneys wouldn't talk during that time either. So I just, you know, I, I hoped that they would all talk to me afterward. And I spent that time um, getting up to speed on the case and reading the trial transcript and in a weird way, it was good because by the time I, I finally sat down with him, I really knew the case and I'd talked to a lot of people already. Um, so it, it was really the, the initial part of the story was very document based. Was it hard to get people to talk to you? It was incredibly hard. And uh, it's funny, I hope this does not come across in the story, but access was just a recurring problem in this, in the writing of this story. Um, people were still. Um, how do I put it? When, when I would when I would contact old friends of his or old neighbors of his, and I was able with this fantastic um, program that we have here at work <laughs> to track down all of his old neighbors that lived on the street that he and Christine lived on in the mid '80s, where where they're living, where those neighbors are living now, and what their new names are. They'd all gotten divorced, and it was a nightmare. But anyway, um, when I would contact those people. Almost uniformly, people were very reluctant to talk. Um, some of them were still afraid of him and still believed that he had done this and didn't trust the results or felt that the evidence had been too overwhelming against him, even though much of that ev evidence was really fabricated. Um, but uh, the people, I'd say the other group of people who were reluctant to talk, I think were simply embarrassed because they had really abandoned him except for this one friend of his everyone abandoned him and I think it was very hard for people to, to deal with that the people who did agree to talk to me I had to really aggressively court and um, through the reporting some of those people got back in touch with Michael so that that was kind of a neat thing that came out of this was it hard or easy to get his son to talk to you I didn't know if he was going to talk to me and it wasn't really till the last minute I was about to sit down to write that he agreed to talk to me and I think you know I think what's what, what I tried to appreciate when I was approaching Eric was um, I was new to this case and so to me it was obvious that Michael was innocent and it was obvious that the DNA evidence was um, decisive but other people have been living with this alternate reality for 25 years. And it's very, very hard to scard that. And I think Eric was really struggling um, for a while to come to terms with this and what did it mean. And, and so when he did agree to talk, um, it, it was wonderful. But there were a lot of letters and, and emails and, and, 
uh, intermediaries working before the, that that first talk happened. Where was he at on that continuum of belief when you first contacted him? When I first contacted him, there was no response, and I had um, been told to hold off on contacting him, and, and finally did. And there was no response, and I think a lot of that was to shield uh, the woman who did raise him, who was Christine's sister, who who did believe that Michael was guilty. And it was a very complex situation. And um, I think he felt that talking to reporters or taking, quote unquote, Michael's side was betraying the woman who he had grown up knowing as his mother. So that, that was hard. You talked about the first part of the reporting being a lot of document reporting. What was your process like for that? I, I imagine the number of documents was staggering for this story. It was, <laughs> thank you for appreciating that. It was really, it was staggering. I mean, it was a a 25-year-long case with multiple appeals filed and, um, uh, you know, a case file that was thousands of pages long. And it it was, but, you know, that's a good problem. I'd always rather have that problem. I'd I'd rather have too much to read than too little. Um, I always start with the trial transcript to me. I've never read a boring trial transcript. There's always so much going on, and um, it's always interesting to read those, especially in wrongful conviction cases, because you can see why the person was convicted, the things that aren't explained to the jury, or the way that the truth is shaded a certain way, or what people believed at that time. So I started there and then worked my way through the appeals and eventually got to the case file, and um, it it was just fascinating, especially... it was almost like going back in a time capsule because, of course, this was 86, 87 that the investigation was taking place. And um, that part of Texas was, was a different world then. It was very rural. And now it's very cosmopolitan and very close to where I live. So it was interesting to go back to that time. How long did you get to work on this story? I am embarrassed to tell you that it took uh, the better part of nine months. I was working on another piece at that time, too, but my my, and, and wrote a short piece during that time, short being 3,000 words compared to the longer piece. Um, but it, it, was, uh, it took a long time, not just to convince people to talk to me, but also just to digest the material. Um, almost everyone I interviewed had completely different recollections of what had happened and when and the sequence of things and who had said what. And so there was because of the amount of time that had gone by in part. Um, so it was, a, it was a long process. And then just figuring out how to write it. There were so many rabbit trails and um, how to write it in a way where people are going to sit down and go through this very complicated legal case but be emotionally connected enough to it to make it to the end. I'm really curious about how you pitched this story. When you pitched it, did you say, hey, it's going to be about 30,000 words? <laughs> I did not. I probably would not have undertaken it if I had realized what it was going to metastasize into. But um, I was on maternity leave with my second child when the, this DNA stuff sort of exploded here in central Texas. This was on the front page of the paper uh, many days in a row. And I literally, I think, for weeks was sending my editor daily emails, please don't give this story away while I'm gone, I'll be back really soon. And um, I think 
I'm not sure that I ever explained we had talked initially about doing something smaller, like a profile of the district attorney who was in, in the middle of this, or a profile of Michael. And as soon as I read the trial transcript, I said, no, this is, this is big. But I was thinking big, like, I had, I had written a 15,000-word story before, and I thought it was big like that. Um, it wasn't until I really got into all this stuff with... Um, what happened to get him out, which was so involved. And, you know, I think what most people read in the papers is, okay, there's this DNA test and it's not him, and so he gets out. But in fact, it was just this incredibly long, complicated, but fascinating legal story. And that seemed to me almost like a separate article. So the story kept growing and growing, and our, our managing editor would laugh at me because I would walk into her office in a panic and I would say, you know, okay, I think now it's 18,000 words, and then two weeks later, okay, I think it's 20. And then I remember at some point saying, I, I really don't know how long it is. And when we went to press on the first part, um, I was still writing the, the second part. Can we talk about the writing process for you here? What was that like? How did you take the sheer number of notes and documents and weave that into a coherent narrative? Thank you. That's a great question. I wish I had a really clear answer for you. I, I knew that it began and ended with Michael and Eric. And I knew between those bookends that it was roughly told in a chronological manner, um, with some exceptions, which I'll try to describe quickly. But um, So what I did was I just tried to group information together chronologically. And I, I usually dump everything I have into a Word document, you know, interesting quotes, um, little snippets here and there from documents. This was so big that I kind of couldn't do that. So I, I just, I had um, actually like physical folders of stuff that was printed out that I could arrange chronologically and reshuffle if I needed to. Um, but, but trying to get basically from Michael and Eric separating to Michael and Eric reuniting was, was the goal. And then there were some um, deviations in there um, about when to reveal information, like chronologically um, in the case, the investigators knew within the first few weeks of Christine's murder that Eric had witnessed the murder, the son. Um, but that didn't seem to me to be the right place to reveal it because Michael didn't know that. And there were multiple places within the narrative that that could have been revealed when his attorneys find it out. You know, I, I won't enumerate all the different places it could have happened, but when I ended up deciding to reveal it was when Michael finds this out and is reading over this material in prison uh, very shortly before his release so that you experience that through his own devastation and, and surprise. Were there any sections that were particularly difficult to write? I, these stories don't usually get to me the way this story got to me, and I don't know if it's because I live here or because... I have a son who's the same age as Eric was when when uh, Michael went to prison, but th this one really got under <laughs> under my skin. Um, but as far as difficulty, I had a lot of trouble with that first section. I always do. I I hate writing. I love reporting. I hate the act of writing. I love it when it's done. Um, it was also challenging once we decided that the story was going to be split in two. 
figuring out how to end that first section. And, and my editor, who's the editor of the magazine, Jake Silverstein, who's a fabulous editor, uh, said, well, we kind of need to have like a cliffhanger to get people through the month. And, and he helped walk me through that. How did you report on something like this and just not become completely depressed? <laughs> um, I tend to only write about really depressing things, so I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. And actually, this one, as strange as it sounds, this one has a, a happy-ish ending in that there is this reunion between father and son and Michael gets out. The, the ones that are really hard to write about, there's a story I wrote about that was published earlier this year, um, where I believe this woman was wrongfully convicted and, and, you know, the story comes out and there's this, people are outraged and they're upset and then, you know, she's still there. And uh, so those are the ones that are really difficult, I think. Can you talk a little bit about the title? It's clearly meant to set a tone, and I think you read the story a bit differently than you would if the title had been a bit more vague. Were there any discussions on what that title would be for the story? That is such a great question, and it, you know, it's funny. This um, that's so interesting, and here's why I say this. I think most people in Texas, most readers, as soon as they we we knew as soon as they sat down with this story. And, and saw that it was about Michael Morton would know, oh, it's that guy who got out of jail because of the DNA results. And so we, to, to try to hide the ball from Texas Monthly readers in that way wouldn't have worked. But your question's so interesting because, of course, this is now has a national and even, I guess, international audience. And um, I hadn't thought about it in, in that way, that, that with those readers we wouldn't maybe want to show our hand so soon. Um, on the other hand, that first, the first paragraph of the story in Michael's voice where he's proclaiming his innocence is so compelling. I think it would be hard to read that and think, oh, this guy's just another guy who's saying he's innocent. Um, but anyway, my, my editor came up with, uh, with that title. I, I didn't have any, I, I wasn't part of those discussions. How much time did you spend with Michael? A lot. Uh, we, we spent... I was so happy when that 60 Minutes piece aired. Um, and, and also, it, it was a great piece, but I think what's, what's wonderful about what we do is even with, you know, 60 Minutes, which is about as good as it gets on, on TV, um, there's only so much you can do in whatever it is. I think it's 12 minutes or 14 minutes tops as far as the depth uh, of what is told. And... Um, so that was that was good to see. But I spent, gosh, we, we initially spent, I think it was three days straight talking, um, long, long days. And it was pretty emotional, actually. And then uh, we stayed in touch and, and talked. We, we often emailed, actually, uh, almost on a daily basis, sometimes several times a day, because I was coming, I was, I was going through so much material and things were contradictory that I had to ask him about a lot of things. Can you talk a little bit about the ending? It's just so powerful. When we talked about it over email, you said you knew it was going to be the ending from the moment you started the story. Can you talk about how you came across it and how you got to it? it I, knew, I knew it was the ending, not when I started the story, but, but when I started writing. Uh, I, the last thing I did before I started writing was I interviewed Eric which I hadn't planned to do it that way. It had just taken that long to get him to agree to talk to me. And I think my emails were starting 
were sounding increasingly desperate as my writing deadlines were starting to get closer. But um, when I went to interview him, I, I knew that his daughter was named uh, Christine, and I thought that was really beautiful, and I definitely wanted to mention that at the end of the story, um, since that's a tribute to his mother, Christine, who he has no memory of, by the way. Um, but there's just something about, and again, this may tie too much into what was going on in my own life, because I had a baby at that time, too, but um, we, she's now a toddler, um, but we, when we talked, there was this sort of interruption in the middle of our interview when uh, Christine woke up from her nap, and um, Eric's wife brought her into the living room, and there was just something about the, for lack of a better word, you know, sort of her, her innocence to what had been going on in her family and all of the, the sadness and um, tragedy of what had happened and that there was sort of this new beginning. And I just was so moved by that. And I was so moved that Eric was now a parent and could finally understand what that was that his father had felt for him, even though they had been disconnected for so many years. And um, I also didn't want, I ended the story with Christine because I, I, the whole story is about Michael and there's some about Eric, but um, I didn't want the victim of the crime to be forgotten either and that, that, that we can sort of end remembering her seemed to me the right way to do it. Are you going to be following any other turns in this case, like the current trial that's, that's going to be going on? Yes, it's, this is, the story keeps going on and on. So in February, there's a very unusual legal proceeding called the Court of Inquiry that's taking place uh, in Georgetown where, where Michael's murder trial happened. And at that proceeding, the um, then district attorney, now sitting judge, who tried this case, will, the, the easiest way to explain it is that he'll be effectively put on trial to see if he broke the law, whether he withheld evidence from the defense and whether criminal charges should be brought against him. And then in March, the man whose DNA was found on this bloody bandana that contained Christine's blood, um, his name is Mark Allen Norwood, he will uh, stand trial for murder on March 18th. So I'll be writing about both of those for our website, and I'll probably be writing about the Norwood trial for the magazine as well. We've been talking with Pamela Koloff, who wrote the story, The Innocent Man, it ran in the November and December 2012 issues of Texas Monthly Magazine. We've linked to both parts on gangrythepodcast.com. Pamela, thanks so much for visiting. Thank you so much. I, I, I love what you guys do, and I'm hugely honored. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. 
For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry, that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast. This episode of Gangry the Podcast was recorded in the studios of WRDL and in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Music in this episode was produced by Noah Heyman. This episode was hosted by yours truly. It was produced by Steve Cease, Glenn Battishill, and myself. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for listening.